This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. A smoker's journey to become a non-smoker is long, full of attempts and relapses, but there is no single decision that is more important for his or her health than to help them succeed. There are two aspects to address. The first being nicotine dependency, and the second is more complex and multifaceted, and that is to support the person toward living as a non-smoker. The person needs long-term support professionally and from their social network together with the use of pharmacotherapy. The longer the support they need, the more they are keen to succeed. Abandoning support in pharmacotherapy too early is one of the biggest causes of failure. Professor Nick Zwa takes us through a stepped and structured approach to this very common and sometimes very difficult problem. But we must remain persistent optimists and not give up on the patient. Professor Zwa, tell us about yourself. Yes, hi, David. So I'm a GP, an academic GP, and uh, I'm also Executive Dean Health Science and Medicine at Bond University. So I'm involved in teaching medical students and other students and research, and I do clinical practice as well. Nick, I'm just going to put before you a fairly common scenario, and I'll see how you can take us through uh, each step. A patient comes to see you and says, um, Professor Zwa, I want to stop smoking. Take it from there. Well, I guess the first thing is to celebrate that because it doesn't happen, you know, every day in our practice. And when it does happen, I think we want to embrace that and, and congratulate that patient on making, on, on attempting to do something, which is probably the best thing they could do for their health. You know, of all the things they could do for their health, stopping smoking is probably number one uh, because it's a risk factor for so many different conditions. And we know over 20-something thousand Australians die prematurely each year of tobacco-related disease. So I think it's congratulating them on that decision, affirming it, and then trying to work out how we can assist in what can be quite a tricky process for some people. I mean, there's evidence from work Ron Ball and others done that for many people who say middle-aged or late middle-aged, they've tried to stop smoking 20 or 30 or even 40 times. So people actually try quite a lot. But the prognosis for any one quit attempt, an unsupported quit attempt, is only about a 5 to 7% success rate. So, you know, a lot of people try but don't succeed long term. And, and I guess our job is to try to increase their chances of success by mobilising what supports we can mobilise to, to that. So uh, encouraging and affirming and congratulating 
And then I think we've got to understand their, their smoking behaviour and how they, how they are thinking about tobacco at that time in their life, at that cross-sectional point. So obviously, you know, we might already, if we know the patient know, know something about their previous smoking, but it's important to update that. We might ask about previous quit attempts and what were the sort of difficulties they had with those and what might have caused them to relapse. We might ask them a bit about what social support is around them to help them in their, in their endeavour. And so, you know, getting an assessment um, and, and tobacco-related disease is obviously important too. Do they already have something like cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease? And what's, you know, what's the motivator? What's brought them to this point in their life where they've said, look, I've got to do something about this. You know, now it's time to do something. So that'd be some assessment, I guess, and documentation is one of the first steps. Nick, when do you think uh, our job is just to be there for them? When do you offer resources? And when do you start to crank up your capacity to help? Yeah, well, I think if someone's asking you for advice, we're clearly going to try and crank up capacity, you know, because sometimes we're just trying to plant the seed in people's minds, you know, when we're documenting tobacco use or reviewing it, you know, we might say something like, you know, you know, stopping smoking would be a really good thing for you to do to health and I'm always happy to talk to you about it or, you know, aren't, aren't cigarettes expensive and, gee, that must be a struggle for you. Things like that, just trying to plant motivation or quiet sort of messages and test the water about the interest, you know, there. So that's that's a different context to the one we're talking about. But here where, you know, someone's actually asking for our help, we're thinking about, well, what can we mobilise for this person? And, you know, as well as assessing their interest and motivation, what the triggers are, we also want to assess a number of things, including their level of nicotine dependence. And that's easy. You know, it's actually, if you had one question, all you would say is, well, what time of the day do you smoke your first cigarette? And if they say, look, I smoke within half an hour of waking or pretty much as soon as I've had my breakfast early in the day, they're nicotine dependent. You don't even have to ask another question. Now, if it isn't quite clear, you can ask a few more like, you know, how many cigarettes a day do you smoke? How do you feel if you're in a situation where you can't smoke, uh, you know, tobacco, like you go to a cinema or an aeroplane flight? I know it goes on those at the moment, you know what I mean? Uh, or what's happened in previous quit attempts? Have you experienced uh, symptoms like irritability uh, or other symptoms of nicotine withdrawal? But, you know, you can get an insight into nicotine dependence fairly easily by that time to first cigarette question and it's a pretty helpful one and, and you know you can also get, get a sense of their view of what sort of supports they're interested in do they want simply to can talk to about it are they open to talking about some sort of pharmacotherapy have they got previous views on pharmacotherapy that they've had in the past so i'm kind of working in my mind here through the five a's um, ask assess advise assist and arrange follow-up so we're kind of doing still ask and assess here because assessment is about, you know, their, their smoking experience, their motivation, their nicotine dependence, what barriers there are, and perhaps also kind of comorbidities, in particular mental health comorbidities. Mm. Because, you know, not uncommonly people might also have anxiety, they might also have depression, mm. they might have a more serious mental, you know, a more kind of psychotic disorder. And all of those things make it harder to quit. Doesn't mean people aren't interested in quitting, but 
it does make it more difficult and they might require more intensive support. So, you know, this ask and assess is sort of helpful to get that picture before you go to in your advice mode, which is around menu of options you might, might offer. All right. Now, let's have a look at advice, Nick. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that we've got a, a fairly young trainee, so we're not talking about an experienced GP. What would you encourage them or what sort of advice can they give that's useful? Yeah, well, it's not, there aren't that many things that have been shown to, to help. So that, that helps in the sense that there's not that much to remember. So in terms of, of sort of behavioural support, uh, it's been shown that if you have both professional support and family support, that that definitely helps. So being willing to, to get help, whether it's from the GP or the practice nurse or the quit line, any of those, but some sort of professional support definitely helps. And if that's proactive, so, you know, say they're using a quit line service, that they sign up for the, the service so where the counsellor rings them on a, an agreed basis over a period of about six weeks, um, rather than when the patient feels something's gone wrong and then they ring. Mm-hmm. So proactive advice helps and scheduling, you know, appointments with the, the, the GP helps. Social support definitely helps. So having family and friends mobilised to support the quit attempt. And, you know, we've all had patients, I've certainly had them, where family and friends have actively undermined the quit attempt, mm. and that's been really disappointing. But, you know, in a, you know, in a spouse, you know, getting grumpy and saying, oh, look, you know, just you're too annoying, go back to smoking, I can't stand you anymore, or something like that. Yeah. Um, or people not smoking outside when someone's trying to quit, that, those sorts of things. That, you know, so mobilising friends and family to say, look, try and help me through this. Um, I sometimes say to people, look, and this is from John Lick. You might know John from South Australia. John, uh, he said, I think of it a bit like a, if you've fallen over and you've got a colleague's fracture, you know, you, you put a cast on that fracture, you reduce it, you get it straight, then you put it, you support it, and you leave it there for about eight weeks. You don't take it off after two weeks and think you can then, you know, use your arm and go and do gymnastics. You know, you, you actually need to support a quit attempt. And the support is, the, is that wrapping around of social support or professional support and sometimes a pharmacotherapy. And people often stop all of those things too soon. Many people, unfortunately, tend to think, oh, I should be able to do this on my own. It's a sign of weakness that I need help. Where actually it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of wanting to succeed, that, that you reach out for assistance from your doctor or the quit, quit line or your family or all of those. So I found that a useful metaphor and it addresses some of the most common problems like people who, for example, use nicotine patches but only use it for two weeks, you know, and then they, they stop. And we know that you really don't get the full benefit unless you use them for about at least six weeks and probably eight weeks would be better. Or if you're using varenicline, you take the full course um, or bupropion, whatever pharmacotherapy it is, that you actually adhere to it. You know, and with varenicline, for example, we know that for people who, who get the initiation script, it's only 50% or less come back for the second script. About 40%, I think, come back for that second script. So, you know, people are, are tend not to use the support. And I think part of our job is encourage that in that assist and, and the arranged follow-up aspects to really try to... to help people see that they're most likely to succeed if they actually use use the services that are available. 
Nick, I really love that concept and I love the idea of the Collis fracture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did say something earlier that sounded like such a beautiful jam, something that probably every um, GP can use uh, with our patients as they begin, uh, something along the lines of the fact that, um, that they're not weak and that by thinking support for longer term, you're actually wanting to succeed. I, I forget exactly how you said it, but it's something so useful that I was hoping that you could repeat it. Well, I'm not sure what I said either, though. But <laughs> that concept of, yeah, mobilise the support and use, use those various supports to maximise your chances of success. Mm. You know, smoking is a chronic relapsing behaviour for many people. And, you know, if you ask people about, you know, what happened in a previous quit attempt, they'll sometimes give you quite an insight into, oh, you know, there was this family conflict, I got angry and I thought, oh, I just don't care. And tobacco triggers in their mind. There's all those overlearned triggers about, you know, stress and tobacco. That's a really common one. And then getting upset, they reach out for the things they've reached out for thousands of times in their lives before, you know, that longer-term smoker. Uh, and trying to relearn those behaviours, that process of becoming a non-smoker is a, is a process that takes time. You know, you can overcome nicotine addiction probably within several weeks, but becoming a non-smoker and not thinking about tobacco as one of the things you, you know, go to when you're under stress or you don't. You sometimes, sometimes people have to kind of reinvent their friends group because, you know, they, they can't hang out with the smokers anymore or they're sort of learned behaviours. So becoming a non-smoker is a, is a slightly different process to overcoming nicotine dependence. I love that um, split, Nick. And I think I want to look at it in that order, uh, in the sense that you said that overcoming nicotine dependency is probably not as hard as learning to become a non-smoker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we want to look at how we actually help them overcome the nicotine addiction in the first place. Now, you've spoken about the supports that they need and the various proactive, if you like, professional services they can reach out to. When will you start actually having the discussion about uh, pharmacotherapy? Well, anyone who's nicotine dependent would benefit from using or should benefit from a pharmacotherapy. That doesn't mean everyone will want to use it, and that's their decision. But if you're nicotine dependent, and most smokers are, 70% or so of smokers are nicotine dependent, um, you'll probably do better if you're using a pharmacotherapy, particularly if you do it in combination with counselling support. Um, Because pharmacotherapy on its own, like say over-the-counter nicotine replacement, has not been shown to be terribly effective. But if you combine it with behavioural support, you know, follow-up, the things I said, then you increase its success rate substantially. So, yeah, so if someone's nicotine dependent, you offer that and you offer the most effective pharmacotherapies on, on, from Cochrane uh, evidence, Cochrane Library reviews, are either combination nicotine replacement therapy. So that's a patch, a slow-acting kind of, you know, form, sort of the boring form of nicotine. Maybe think of it that way. It takes about an hour and a half to get to peak level. It stays there over the day, maybe drops off sort of nine in the evening or eight in the evening dull, not exciting, but just there, uh, and then and supplementing that uh, with some shorter-acting oral form, whether it's gum or lozenge or mouth spray, doesn't matter, for periods of the day where you might have more urge to smoke or maybe a situational thing. So that might be 
you know, for your morning coffee, if you have, that's been a, a link for you, or, you know, whatever has been your linkage. And it's often five or six, you know, so that kind of number of the short-acting doses over the course of the day, along with that boring, long-acting patch. So combination NRT is more effective than NRT monotherapy, so just, just patch or just gum or just lozenge. We don't use it as much as I think we probably should or could. Unfortunately, the combination is not PBS subsidised, so you get either patch or gum or something on the PBS, but not both. But if people get you know, their patch subsidised, then buy some short-acting. It's not a lot of money because it's you know, they've come down in price. So that's that option. And the other most effective option is Varenicline, uh, which unfortunately there's an availability problem at the moment, which we might get to. Um, but varenicline, uh, oral nicotine receptor partial agonist, um, yes, does have some problems with nausea, but about similar effectiveness to combination uh, nicotine replacement. So they'd be your kind of first go-to forms of pharmacotherapy. Eupropion is another option, but it's not as effective as those two, and there's more issues with um, drug interactions and more concerns about potential risk of seizures. That's not a high risk. You know, so probably not your first line treatment, but certainly evidence-based and approved. So is it definitely an option as well? Before we go to the oral therapies, I want to go back to the nicotine replacement. When is too much? Uh, there is a concern that we might be giving too little, so it doesn't work. But when is it too much? And when is it just right? Well, you want to not have want people not to be irritable, not to be cranky, not to be experiencing that, that. The most common forms of nicotine withdrawal syndrome are crankiness, irritability, difficult concentrating, just being fractious, you know, uh, and you don't want people to be experiencing cravings uh, for, for tobacco. So you want to have enough that people are not, are not getting that. The symptoms of too much nicotine are, are nausea and sort of sweatiness. But most people who've been smokers are pretty good at titrating the amount of nicotine they want. They don't often, now I'm not saying it never happens, it does sometimes happen, but they don't often take too much because they, they it's a familiar sensation for them to, to have nicotine. So they kind of modulate that pretty effectively in most instances. The usual problem, as you said, is underdosing because, you know, when you go from tobacco which is an incredibly efficient way of delivering nicotine to uh, any form of nicotine replacement. It's slower onset with nicotine replacement and usually not as high a peak level. I mean, when, you, when people inhale on a cigarette, the nicotine's reaching their central nervous system within about 15 seconds. Mm. When you put a patch on, it doesn't get to peak until about an hour and a half. Mm. When you use gum, it's probably at peak levels in about 20 minutes. So you can see how much slower it is in onset than any of our, you know, than, than, than inhaled tobacco. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a problem, but it, it, most people will titrate back themselves. I guess the ones that occasionally surprise you is that the person who, who says they smoke 10 cigarettes a day when they, you know, go out on a Friday night or Saturday night, but not during the week, and perhaps they don't inhale a lot of it um, and really harvest much nicotine from their t- tobacco. And, and perhaps they might experience some of those head spins and nausea initially, but they generally realise fairly soon and back titrate the dose of their NRT. 
This health ed educational segment is brought to you by Aspen, the manufacturers of Zyban. Please view the Zyban PI and PBS listing in the information and links provided by Aspen. Now I'm just going to come to another inhalation technique that we may use before the orals, and it's vaping. I'd like to hear your views on vaping. Well, I think the approved ones come first. So we've talked about nicotine replacement therapies are a tested and approved medicine for smoking cessation. Lots of randomised trials, lots of safety data, etc. Similarly with Renaclean, lots, you know, randomised trials, safety data. Yes, it's a bit concerned in people with mental health, but I think that's quite manageable. Bupropion similarly tested some issues with seizure risk and interactions, but pretty thoroughly understood. Now, when we come to nicotine vaping, so nicotine-containing e-cigarettes, Important to understand, nowhere in the world is there a therapeutic nicotine e-cigarette. Nowhere in the world has yet the nicotine e-cigarette gone through a full medicines assessment process and been registered as a medicine, either in the US or Europe or Australia or anywhere. So we don't have that level of knowledge and certainty. There is some evidence that nicotine e-cigarettes can help people to stop smoking. And there's just two or three randomised trials showing some slight benefit or higher rate of success compared to nicotine patch. So, um, you know, maybe um, there there is certainly some evidence, but there's no long-term safety data for nicotine e-cigarettes. So we just don't know about their long-term safety. And, you know, the range of chemicals in nicotine e-cigarettes is much less than inhaled tobacco there are still some volatile substances which certainly have the potential to cause lung damage and other adverse effects. They're very much for people, I mean, I think they have a role, but they're for people who have not succeeded in quitting using pharmacotherapy and support and who would like to try nicotine Mm e-cigarettes. You know, you need to really kind of explain to people those, all those uncertainties, and there are quite a few uncertainties, as I've mentioned, I've just summarised them, before you would agree to go down that road. I can hear you really pushing it right down the hierarchy there, Nick, because that was not lo- that long ago that we had somebody die in Australia from it. Is that right? Well, there's debate around that, but someone died recently um, and, they, and the clinicians and the um, post-mortem thought it was consistent with uh, vaping lung disease, a valley, which is the name of the condition where quite a few people in the United States had illnesses and deaths related to, to vaping. Though it's important to mention in the US, it was associated with vaping vitamin E acetate, which is used to make cannabinoids more aerosolized, or, and, and it wasn't in most instances. Uh, related to uh, vaping anything else. But, you know, there have been a small number of instances of that syndrome which were not thought to be related to vitamin E and may have been related to other substances in the vaping uh, aerosol. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that, that we have had that recent um, death in Australia. And there's certainly risks of poisoning too with nicotine e-liquids, particularly higher concentration ones. Uh, and um, the nicotine, if, if ingested, is highly toxic, especially to young children. And we have had a death in Australia of a child who ingested 
uh, their parents' nicotine vaping liquid. Wow, I haven't heard that, Nick. Mm-hmm. And that was tragic. So that, that great deal of caution around high concentration nicotine vaping liquids that need to be diluted before they can put in, be put in the vaping device. Um, so if you have 100 milligram per mil liquid, which you know is, is some people use, it would be a couple of mils of that could kill a child or even less. Now, you mentioned the word legal, and of course there is the illegal. What is A, the difference, and B, the dangers? Okay, well, so since October last year, Australia has a, adopted a unique approach to availability of nicotine vaping products. So nicotine vaping products under the TGA, Therapeutic Goods Administration, definition is the liquid that you use in your vaping device. <clears throat> so whether it's, um, you know, uh, free-based nicotine in a liquid form, or whether it's the pods that you pop into your device that you then you then get the vaping um, the vapor from, so it's not the machine; it's the it's the thing that the nicotine uh, liquid or pod. So to now have those legally in Australia, you need a doctor's prescription, and, and the doctor can write them either under the authorised prescriber route. So if you go to the TGA and become an authorised prescriber, or for personal importation. But the prescription, if someone's doing personal importation, has to be attached when someone seeks to import nicotine vaping products from overseas. Now, it's somewhat complex because we have a a standard. The TGA came up with a standard for nicotine vaping products, TGA 110, which had some things about labelling, about concentrations, about childproof seals, etc. And they apply... If you are an authorised prescriber, you write the prescription as that and, you, and it's dispensed through an Australian pharmacy. Those standards do not all apply if someone's importing from overseas. Some do, some don't. So I wish I could tell you it was simple, but it's not, David. So the advice that the College of GPs guideline, which I was the chair of, as you know, the expert advisory group was, we would encourage people if they're going to prescribe to use the authorised prescriber route because then you know that all of those requirements of TGO 110 should apply and to get that dispensed by an Australian pharmacy because then you get that added surety that the pharmacy wholesaler has made sure that the products meet the standard and the pharmacist has made sure that the product meets the standard. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're going to become a prescriber and prescribe these medicines, that's a safer way to go in, in, in our view. Now, a lot of GPs are choosing not to prescribe. They just say, look, no, it's just, I don't feel it's too uncertain. I don't know, it's not an approved medicine, et cetera, and have chosen not to be involved. That's fine. Um, but um, if you are going to get involved, there's some su- suggestions to help you uh, on the RACGP smoking cessation guidelines um, website, which is you know, available just by Googling. And we've done a recent module, came out September last year, trying to address these issues that um, we're talking about now. Nick, I I will not go into uh, vaping in the younger generation. I think that's a whole different podcast. Well, Um, can I say one thing about that, Dave, just very quickly? Disposable vaping devices are a major, major problem. And people listening to this may know family, friends, you know, their, their, their local school can be littered by these devices. And they are a real problem. 
in terms of concentration, in terms of marketing to young people who are non-smokers and the fact that they create litter which has a battery in it. So, I mean, I think they are particularly um, troublesome and certainly to be discouraged. Apart from all this, Nick, I had read in America that there are such things as synthetic nicotine getting around something the uh, FDA had put up. Is that becoming an issue for us in Australia? It's a good question. As far as I know, it isn't yet, because I think our, the, the, what that synthetic nicotine is metabolised to is nicotine. So under our rules, anything that's getting here legally would need to be either nicotine in the free base form or nicotine in the nicotine salt form. It couldn't be anything else to come in to Australia under TGO 110 and to be prescribed. Now, things coming in illegally is different and those disposable vapes, which I mentioned earlier, mm. are pretty much all coming in illegally still. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, that is a problem that's yet to be, seems from what I hear, to be fully addressed. But I don't think we have that regulatory problem that the FDA have where so-called synthetic nicotine uh, evades their definition of, of nicotine. Well, I certainly look forward to this space because it looks like a gaping loophole where the young people are having access to, to a lot of stuff that we have no control over. Yeah, it's a real worry. And, you know, uptake of, of, of nicotine use in young, young non-smokers is something that, um, you know, is, is, is a concern. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Now, let's just move on to the oral agents. Um, and you've told us a little bit about each. I would like you to just take, talk us through uh, initiation, assessment for continuation, ongoing script. When is it success or failure? Yeah, so Verendaclean first. So, you know, as people will know, there's an initiation and there's a continuation. There's a titration phase, you know, where, and the main reason for that is people getting too much nausea if you would just go straight on to the higher dose. So you titrate up and then you are on the constant dose. I mean, very much encourage people to come back for that continuation script just for the reasons we talked about before. The main issues besides nausea are sometimes people can get some strange dreams. Sometimes they can feel a little bit agitated. Though that can happen when people stop smoking as well. So, you know, it's not um, necessarily caused by the, by the medicine. Mm. That been concerns about neuropsychiatric side effects, including the ones I mentioned, uh, though in the big randomised trials looking at that, <clears throat> they were not actually no more common with Renaclean than they were with um, nicotine replacement or with um, bupropion. Um, and there was a fair degree of, of, of use in people with stable mental health problems. There seemed to be a, a, a good safety data. Certainly, I, I think there's reason to think that you can prescribe uh, Verenaclean to people with, with mental health problems, stable mental health problems. Um, I think they're the main things to say about Verenaclean. The other thing is just the availability. Unfortunately, it's problematic at the moment. Uh, the particular brand, Champix, has not been available for some months. And the TGA is working on importation of a Canadian product, which is only available in one milligram tablets. Um, so it would have to be halved for the, that, that initial titration. Um, and it won't be, it's not ARTG listed or TGA approved, uh, and it won't be on the PBS. But having said all that, it's still Verenaclean, 
and it meets the TGA standards for you know it, it, its composition, uh, and it should be coming available um, reasonably soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's called APO Vrenicline, uh, uh, APO, and it's made by a company called Apotex, A-P-O-T-E-X. So that problem is, is improving, though it's not solved yet. And, of course, you just touched on a few, a few times the bupropion. Yeah. When would we even consider using that? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's not as effective as, as uh, Brenaclean or combination NRT. It's similar in effectiveness to NRT monotherapy. So you're probably looking at, you know, 15% success rate, something like that, and years follow-up combined with um, support. That's not bad. You know, that, that's, a, that's, you know, a lot better than 5 or 7% with un, 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 unsupported quitting. Um, but you do have to be a bit careful in terms of people with history of seizures. Uh, you wouldn't give them brenaclean. People who are on other medicines, particularly SSRIs, you have to be cautious uh, with initiating brenaclean because of a potential for seizure risk. Uh, and tricyclic antidepressants too, though we don't use those very much. Um, but having said all that, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a very reasonable choice and providing you're aware of those potential risks and you choose your patient, you know, it's a, it's a very reasonable therapy, as always, combined with support from the GP or the quit line or both to get that, that follow-up. And again, you need to give it for long enough, you know, with, with all of these things, we're talking about, you know, at least a, an eight-week course the standard courses are, you know, obviously evidence-based for that particular medicine. But as I said earlier, many people stop them too soon and don't get the full benefit. Mm. One of the uh, lessons that I keep hearing is that um, sometimes we, the GPs, uh, need to be given lots of tolerance in patients because patients will just fall over time and time again, but we should never give up on them. I totally agree, David. I think part of our job as GPs when it comes to tobacco and and other drug and alcohol problems too is to be just a persistent optimist, you know, just to believe that this patient, this person at some point will get to a stage where uh, they will make a decision and with some assistance, they'll succeed. And if we express that belief, then that can help them to have that belief. And I think the evidence supports that. If people persist, they will succeed and, and, ha- and le- try to learn from past experience, you know, mm-hmm. the triggers to previous relapse. How do they avoid them? How do they stay calm when there's you know, some conflict? How do they not, if they have a, uh, a lapse and have one cigarette, how do they not go become a, you know, a proper relapse? I say to people, look, you're only a non-smoker while you're not smoking. You can't think that it's okay to even have one cigarette because if you've been nicotine dependent, you can get re-addicted really quickly. So don't even think about having even one because then you don't have to have the decision about, you know, having another one. So I think that can be a helpful message. And and people who have been uh, nicotine dependent kind of get that. You know, they know from past experience that it, it is very easy for them to to get back into that a mindset that their brain is some, <clears throat> some, in some ways preset towards it from exposure over time. And I think that can be helpful for them staying a non-smoker to, to just make that a rule that they always follow. 
And, you know, there's some, we haven't talked about it, but there's some, you know, suggestions early on, like minimise alcohol and work out what some of your triggers are and substitute, you know, that. If your trigger's coffee, have water instead, all of those sorts of things can help too. Those sound like little strategies to help the person maintain their life as a non-smoker, as opposed to getting them off the nicotine. Because I really believe that that other part, which is walking with them as they learn to be a non-smoker, is also really interesting because I, I hear what you're saying. How are you coping with problems? How are you coping with stress? That's the kind of stuff that is individual, it's yeah. different, and it happens spontaneously when we're not there. Absolutely, yeah. And I think as a, as, you know, if you've had a long-term therapeutic relationship with someone, you know, they can tell you about how they struggle with those things and we can kind of, you know, um, get an insight into, into that and just talking about it and how they, how they, their coping strategies and how they manage that, mm. help them to, to get more prepared for that. Yeah. Sometimes people even practice things in the mirror, what they're going to say when some, someone offers them tobacco, you know, how they're going to say no. Mm. Um, sort of, I mean, they're very, very practical things which some people do to kind of prepare themselves for situations where they, they might be at risk of resuming their addiction. It's obviously a very long list and lots of resources. If if you have an ex, if you have access to some of the resources to help a smoker become and live as a non-smoker, I'd really love to have access to it so I can attach it to your podcast, Nick. Yeah, sure. And there's a great new resource too, just recently established. There's a thing called the National Quit Training and Resource Centre, which has just been set up by Cancer Council Victoria with Commonwealth Government funding www.quitcentre.org.au. So that's a real one-stop shop for a whole range of things. I mean, the College of GPs um, smoking cessation guidelines are there, a whole lot of other things as well. Nick, do you have any final messages to our listeners? Look, I think, as you said, David, it's about being the optimist. I mean, I think, you know, we know that from a whole lot of research that smoking cessation from advice, advice from GPs does have an effect. And it won't be that a lot of people come back to you and say, doctor, because of your advice, I'm quit. I've quit. It will be a whole range of things in their life, but your advice is one of the things that's helped and helped to motivate that. And then if we can support people to be, to, to be more likely to be successful, that's, that's good as well. And, you know, even if you don't see a lot of successes, it doesn't mean that there aren't successes out there. And it's a very cost-effective thing and, you know, in terms of population health, it's one of the most, you know, important things we do that has benefit in terms of improved health for our, you know, our population. Uh, you know, smoking is still the, one of the major causes of preventable disease and death. So uh, it, it hasn't gone away and we need to keep um, trying to help people to, to succeed in, in either not starting or stopping uh, and staying stopped once they're stopped. Nick, I always thank you for your words of wisdom. It's always great to talk to you as well. Great, David. Love you to chat. Take care. Bye. All the best. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best 
possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.